Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And as you're turning there, I'm going to bring a, an image up here on the screen. All right. That's a famous painting. Let's see who knows who painted that painting. It's called The Raising of the Cross. Anybody know who painted this? Rembrandt. All right, this is Rembrandt. This is a Rembrandt. Now, if you know anything about Rembrandt, you know that he liked doing self-portraits as well. He did tons of self-portraits, pictures of himself. And he even incorporated pictures of himself into some of his other artwork. And that's the case here. This is a Rembrandt picture, the raising of the cross. Rembrandt was, as far as we can tell, he was a believer. And uh, he painted this picture here. And he has himself in the picture. And this is Rembrandt right here. Now, you'll notice because he's not wearing the same type of clothing that everyone else. And you can see he has an artist beret on. And I don't think there was anybody in Jesus' day around the cross wearing an artist beret. So it kind of stands out. And also the way he did the lighting in the picture, he kind of has the spotlight on Jesus and on himself. Those two figures stand out in the whole picture. And when people ask Rembrandt why he did this, he gave a good theological answer. He says, because I'm the one that put Jesus there. You'll see he's the one helping lift the cross. He understood that his sin was instrumental in the reason Jesus died, just like your and my sin was as well. He saw himself in the story, so he painted himself into the story. Now, I show you guys that this morning simply to ask you to be thinking along those lines with today's text. Do you see yourself in the story here that we're going to read today as we continue to go through the life of Christ? Do you see you in this story? Who are you in this story? And I'll come back to that later. But for right now, turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 13. As I said earlier, we're continuing our verse-by-verse journey through the life of Jesus Christ. Um, This is our our series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a chronological journey through all four Gospels. Today's story in Mark is also paralleled in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. But we're going to read Mark's version, so please stand if you would as we get ready to read. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Let's pray. 
Jesus, I'm so thankful that you are a friend of sinners, as we sang earlier. That you were willing to go sit at a table with your enemies and reconcile many. And so I thank you for doing the same thing with us. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would open up our ears to hear your word and open up our eyes to see the truth. Enable me to speak the truth. Father, bless your word as it goes forth. We know that it does not return void. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Now, I've chosen to stay in the Gospel of Mark for the next few sermons because I want us to see this unit of stories that uh, are in all of the synoptics. Now, if you haven't heard me explain this before, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's because these Gospels are very similar. Uh, They use a lot of the same source material as they put together their Gospels. The Gospel of John is different than them in, in many different ways, although there's some crossover similarities and stories as well there. But the Gospel of John is spoken from a little bit different perspective. But the synoptics have five stories in a row of Jesus having confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the religious elite of Jesus' day. The confrontations escalate as each story progresses. You may remember last week, after Jesus saw the faith of the five men who, who broke through Peter's roof and lowered a paralytic to himself, and he pronounced the paralytic's sins forgiven, you may remember that the reaction of the Pharisees was one that they felt Jesus was speaking blasphemy. This was blasphemous, or so the Pharisees and the scribes thought. And Jesus, of course, knowing their thoughts, responds to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And of course, the paralytic did exactly that. And so the people were astonished and amazed at what they had seen, but the Pharisees were not so pleased. We don't see it directly in last week's text, but the combination of last week's text with today's and the next three, we'll see there is an increasing level of anger that the Pharisees have toward Jesus to the point that they will eventually, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says they held counsel to find a way to destroy him. So by the time we get to the end of these five stories, we will see that the Pharisees have decided to destroy Jesus, to get rid of him. Now in today's text, Jesus is again, once again teaching. Mark chapter 3, chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Again, his primary task was one of teaching and preaching, not miracles per se. But the miracles had certainly drawn crowds who were coming to him, and Jesus was not going to pass up an opportunity So as the crowds would gather, he would begin to preach and begin to teach. So here he is walking along the seaside with his disciples, stopping to preach and to teach as the crowds gather. And eventually he walks past a man named Levi or Matthew. We know from the other Gospels that his name was also Matthew, which wasn't an uncommon practice in those days. You have Saul and Paul. You have Cephas and Simon and Peter These are all names that are used interchangeably, Mark and John Mark. So it was a very common practice in those days for someone to have two names, especially if someone was trying to communicate with both the Jewish culture and the Hellenistic culture. 
that surrounded the Jewish culture. So Levi was a very Jewish name, but Matthew, not necessarily. So as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, meaning he was a tax collector. Now I'll explain more about that job in a little bit, but for now, let us understand that tax collectors were the most despised people in all of Judea, in all of Palestine. Just as leprosy was the most despised disease, tax collectors were the most despised people. So Jesus, two weeks ago, heals the most despised disease, and today he calls the most despised person to be his disciple. By and large, they were crooks and swindlers, and they were considered to be traitors to the Jewish people. So Jesus is walking by, and he sees one of these despised tax collectors. And that wasn't uncommon. They were everywhere. But what was uncommon and downright shocking to all around Jesus was what happened next. Verse 14, and he said to him, follow me. Now, this had to ruffle some feathers. I mean, it was one thing to call uneducated fishermen to be his disciples. But this, this was over the top. I can imagine even Peter and Andrew, James and John even saying, Him, Lord? And more than likely, because they were in the same region, in the same city, Matthew had actually exacted taxes from Peter, Andrew, James and John. And so I can only imagine them saying, Really? You're calling Him, Jesus? Yes, Him, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Follow me, Levi. And what I want to fix our minds on this morning is this call. Follow me. It's a call to believe. Friends, all throughout the Gospels you will see following Christ paralleled with believing in Christ. In Jesus' thought and in his teachings, it's the same thing. If you are a believer, then you are a follower. That's one of the reasons I reject any soteriological model that divides belief from obedience. Belief from repentance and obedience. The more you look at Jesus' words, the more you find that that is an artificial distinction that we have imposed upon the text that's not really there. To believe is to follow. To follow is to believe. It's a call to discipleship. To be a disciple is to be one who believes in, puts all of his hope in, puts all of his weight upon, puts all of his faith in Jesus alone for life now and life hereafter. And thus it logically and naturally and biblically results in turning from the sinful course that we were once on and being supernaturally reoriented to follow and obey him willfully and joyfully on a new course. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 5, 1 and following, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith you see this mixture of overcoming the world with obedience and belief it's all throughout the scripture there are two sides of the same coin verse 5 of that first John passage who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God 
So this call is a saving call. It's a call to discipleship. It's a call to surrender and to belief. A call to repentance and faith in the Son of Man. And I want to notice three things about this call this morning. And here's the first one. Notice, first of all, the irresistible nature of Christ's call to discipleship. The irresistible nature of Christ's call to discipleship. Verse 14, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And Alphaeus, and, and Levi thought about it for a little bit and said, Let me weigh this some. Let me get back with you, Jesus, in a couple of days. That's not at all what the Scripture says. It says, And he rose and followed him. Just like Peter and Andrew, just like James and John, when Jesus calls this man, he simply obeyed. When Christ's saving call goes forward, it is a call that penetrates the heart and turns the heart from things of the world and toward Christ. When Jesus purposes to save the lost sinner, he does so, and his call is irresistible. Just like James and John, we read that Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. Now we know from Luke's parallel account in Luke chapter 5 verse 28. It says, and leaving everything he rose and followed him. So Luke gives us a little bit more detail. He left everything and rose and followed Jesus. For Matthew, this was even more of a radical move than it was for the other guys. We know that from reading the Gospels that Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all returned to fishing periodically while they were still disciples of Jesus, they returned to fishing. That didn't mean that they were in any sense forsaking Jesus, but they could continue their profession and still be disciples of Jesus. But Matthew, Matthew, by abandoning his tax booth, was making a move that he could not undo. There was no turning back. Not only was he walking away from his career, he was walking away from great wealth. Tax collectors were very wealthy individuals. And a career as a tax collector guaranteed wealth. The Roman Empire wasn't going anywhere anytime soon at that time. So here's this man walking away from a job that would guarantee him a comfortable lifestyle. Why? To follow this, this Nazarene who had a handful of fishermen following him around? To everyone who, who may have been on the outside looking in, this was insane. But to Matthew... It was the only thing he wanted to do. The moment those words were spoken, his heart leapt to new life within him. And those denarii piled up on the table no longer had the same appeal. Matter of fact, they paled in comparison to the one who was now calling him. He now had new appetites, new desires. And with his will now awakened to the truth, he willingly arose, abandoned all the world had to offer, and he followed Christ. Like those words, those great words penned by Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's Jesus' irresistible call to discipleship, to salvation. When the Lord opens the heart, the heart gets up and follows him. Men will always resist God. Sinful men always resist God. Men are born resisting God. Except for a spirit-wrought work of saving grace, we will always use our freedom to resist God. 
So we believe and we teach at Harbin's that God is sovereign and he can and will overcome all sinful resistance of man as he so wills and his will will not be thwarted. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand is what Daniel said in Daniel 4.35. When God undertakes to fulfill his sovereign purpose by saving a tax collector on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he does it. Period. God's salvific call to true discipleship is a sovereign work of God to overcome the rebellion of our hearts and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can be saved. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's exactly what God did in the heart of another person. You remember Lydia? Remember in our study of Acts? Paul begins to teach those gathered at a river outside of Philippi. And we read in Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This drawing, this opening of the heart, this willingness to stand up and to follow is a sovereign work of grace without which no one can be saved from their rebellion against God. If our doctrine of total depravity is true, then there can be no salvation without the reality of irresistible grace. Let me say that again. If the doctrine of total depravity is true, there can be no salvation without irresistible grace. If we are dead in our sins, totally unable to submit to God, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our resistance, our rebellion, with his overwhelming grace. And that's exactly what he did with a wicked tax collector named Levi. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and following say, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Matthew looks up at this man saying, following me, and sees the power of God and the wisdom of God on display, and he believes and he follows, he has faith and he obeys, And his heart is changed. And when your heart is changed in that sort of way, then it can truly see and savor who Jesus really is. Well, then there's nothing stopping you at that point. And you willfully delight in the Lord. And that's what we see here. Matthew willfully steps up and begins to delight in Jesus. And that's my next point. Observe the joyous overflow of Christ's call to discipleship. Observe this Joyous overflow. So what does Matthew do when he becomes a disciple of Jesus? He throws a party. I don't know, a redemption party perhaps? Or a good news party? Or a you gotta meet this guy party? I don't know. The parallel in Luke though says, Luke chapter 5 verse 29, that Levi made him a great feast. Now it's in the house of Levi and the feast is for Jesus. He's the honored guest. And Levi made him a great feast. The, the Greek here is basically, you could call this a mega feast. This is no little get-together. It was a party. So Jesus and his small handful of disciples go to Matthew's house to celebrate. And we read in verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, who would you expect Matthew to invite, but his friends. Tax collectors had no respectable friends. The only ones that would befriend them were other tax collectors and godless people. 
sinners here, this word sinners, it refers to godless people or people of questionable morality and character. And that's how the label was used by the Pharisees. And it it was more of a label than than a statement of fact. Because even the Pharisees, they would recognize that all men were sinners. But they reserved that label of sinners for the worst of the worst. The sinners who hadn't got their act together like they had. Godless people. Immoral people. But that's the only people Matthew knew. So he wants to celebrate the newness of life that he has found and share it with others. Friends, there is unmistakable contagious joy that flows out of the heart of someone that's been made new. A heart that can echo the psalmist in Psalm 4-7. We read Psalm 4 earlier. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What's got Matthew pumped at this party? It isn't the wine and the grain. It is the joy in his heart of knowing Jesus. A heart that testifies to the prophet Isaiah's words, Isaiah 35-10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. A heart that agrees with what the angels said in Luke chapter 2 verse 10 when they spoke and they sang to the shepherds. When they brought the message of good news of great what? Joy. A heart that hears the apostles' command to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 to rejoice always. And to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, a double command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. A heart that hears Paul and Peter and James all say that we are to consider even our trials to be pure joy. Christian, if you are missing that joy this morning, then perhaps you should pray as Daniel did in Psalm 51, 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I wonder if unconfessed sin is the excuse for so many of our sour dispositions on the faces of those of us who claim to be followers of Christ. What is sin but unbelief? Unbelief that Christ is a greater treasure than what the world has to offer. So we moan and we groan that the worldly circumstances of our life aren't lining up according to our will and our joy evaporates. When we should be fixing our eyes on treasures above, namely Jesus Christ himself, and know that if we have Jesus, we have everything. A heart that treasures Christ above all is a heart that should be overflowing with joy. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that's what we have with Matthew here. We've seen the irresistible nature of Christ's call to discipleship and this joyous overflow that comes from this call to discipleship. But I want to finally observe this morning, and I'll spend most of our time here on the third point. I want us to humbly observe, number three, the scandalous scope of Christ's call to discipleship. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Friends, there's no way to spin this. What Jesus did here in today's text was absolutely scandalous. 
a little bit more about tax collectors, if you will. There were three different types of taxes levied upon the Jewish people. These taxes were heavy and they were hard. You think we have issues today? Doesn't compare. Okay? First, there was something called the head tax. This was simply a tax conducted by periodic censuses. So just for being born into the Roman kingdom, you get taxed. It's because you've got a head on your body. It's called the head tax. This was the tax that, that uh, Mary and Joseph were going to observe when they traveled to Bethlehem. Okay, then there was the land tax. If you own land, this tax was collected in the form of a percentage of whatever your land yielded as a tribute to Rome. And that percentage could change sometime at the will of Rome. A percentage of whatever you grew, whatever your produce was, went to Rome. That was the land tax, and the other was the head tax. Finally, there was the most hated of the taxes, which was the customs tax. This tax came in the form of tolls and duties collected at tax booths, usually located at city gates, sometimes located outside of the temple, or on significant trade routes or commercial routes. There would be these booths. And the taxes could be levied against any goods you might be carrying. And the value of those goods was determined by the tax collector himself. So imagine Peter, James, John, they, they're coming back home after some, they've got a, a load of fish. Tax collector comes and says, you know, I think you've got about, you know, $4,000 worth of fish there and you need to give me 10% of that. What are you talking about? I've got 10 fish here. Yeah, that's, that's $4,000 worth of fish in my mind. That, that's how they could do it. Now, these first two taxes were collected, the first two, the head tax and the land tax, they were collected by government officials. Uh, that's why there was the census that was called. But it was this last tax, the custom tax, that was collected by tax collectors. The Roman government would be far too stretched thin to try to collect these taxes on their own. So they farmed them out to others. Matter of fact, these tax collectors, another word for them was tax farmers. And it was based upon that, that Rome farmed out these jobs to other people. The way this worked was that an individual, if he was wealthy enough, or a group of individuals would come together and buy a tax franchise of sorts from Rome. They would buy the right to be able to collect the taxes. Now usually it was more than one person coming together to do this. Like, so kind of like an investment group, if you will. Now Zacchaeus was probably the head of such a group. That's why in the text we'll get to about Zacchaeus, we'll read that he was a chief tax collector. So perhaps he was kind of the head over a group of guys that had gathered together, pooled their money, had bought a tax franchise from Rome. Now they would, they would buy it by providing the tax money up front to Rome. This, this meant that they had to be rich to start off with. So every year they would provide the money up front to Rome in order to have their little tax business. And then they were allowed by Rome to, to recoup their cost through the taxes and a little bit more to pay themselves. Now, there were regulations and there were tax rates that Rome had set, but there was no good oversight over any of these things. And so the tax collectors could become very, very, very corrupt, and they did. Tax collectors would take advantage of people. They would seemingly stop people at will and tax them for anything and everything they wanted to. As bad as you think our IRS is, these guys were worse. Tax collectors were powerful, greedy, corrupt swindlers who had government protection. And that made them even more hated in the eyes of the Jews because these tax collectors were essentially traitors. They had sold themselves out to Rome. So imagine some 
invading army takes over our nation. Let's say Al-Qaeda gets powerful enough to overrun America and overtakes our nation. Then they put want ads out in the paper to see who will collect taxes for them. And some of you guys in here sign up for the want ad. I'll do that job. Traitor to your people, a traitor to the nation was what these tax collectors were. The Jewish rabbis of the day declared tax collectors to be ceremonially unclean. And anyone who ate or fellowship with them was likewise unclean. Furthermore, they barred tax collectors from the synagogue and even said they taught it was permissible to lie to or mislead a tax collector. And it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be sin on your part. To lie to or mislead a tax collector was okay because they were so corrupt. So they used the, the rabbis used the injustice of the tax system to justify their own little sins. Hmm. Maybe that hits a little too close to home. A lot of people justify our actions today because, well, government's out of control. IRS is out of control. It's no big deal if I do this. Do you realize if you guys give me a gift as a pastor, any member of this church, now non-members it doesn't apply to, any member of this church, you give me a gift, I have to declare it as taxable income. I just guarantee that I'm not getting any gifts for any birthdays from here on out. But anything that has a significant value, for example, a group of church members gathered together and bought me a Bible for Pastor Appreciation Month about six years ago. And um, it was a very nice Bible. And I, but I had to declare that on my tax return. It would be very easy to say, that is so stupid. And just ignore that. The IRS isn't going to come and ask me where I got that Bible. That wouldn't be sin, would it, to just not mention it? That's exactly what the rabbis were teaching the people in that time. No, you can lie to tax collectors. They're, they're unjust scumbags and traitors, so you can lie to them. It's okay, we'll let you do that. So that's the culture of the day. And hope that gives you a little bit better idea of who these tax collectors were. So here's Jesus, first of all, calling tax collector to be his disciple. Now you may remember that when we looked at the call of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that we said in those days, people would come and ask to be a student of a rabbi. It was sort of apply to be, oh, I want to be sit at so-and-so's feet, but not with Jesus. He went out and chose his own students, and he chooses a tax collector. He chose smelly fisherman. And a man that smelled more than a little fishy, a rotten tax collector. But worse than that, now here's Jesus eating with the tax collector and all of his godless friends. Perhaps these other tax collectors are part of Matthew's group of franchise owners. Who knows? But they were not considered to be good people in society. And here were other godless people around them. And to eat with people in Jesus' day was to fellowship with them and to become personally close to them. It meant that he was identifying with them. A meal was an intimate setting, especially in that culture. And it's the same way in our day. Perhaps not as much as it was during their day. But you don't just let anyone come over to your house and eat. And you don't just go over to anyone's house to eat. There is something about sharing a table with someone that is deeply personal. So Jesus was getting friendly and personal with these people. And these were not the church-going type. These were not the upstanding citizens. No Boy Scouts here. These were not the cultural conservatives of Jesus' day. So let your mind go with me a little bit here. Imagine there's Jesus sitting there 
And as the food is being passed around, he's sitting there with Peter and Andrew, James and John. And across the table from them is a slimy, corrupt politician who in the past would do just about anything for the right dollar amount. And beside him is is an ACLU lawyer who has successfully lobbied him to oppose anything Christian over and over again. Then you squint and you see the other side of the room. There's a woman who's been known around town for sleeping with anyone and everyone. And then beside her, you see, you see the director of the Planned Parenthood Clinic that had helped this woman conveniently dispose of the consequences of her loose behavior. By, beside them is the man who was, who was known uh, to everyone always to be strung out on something, addicted to something, drunk. It never changed. He always had an excuse. Then there was that irritating man over there who always considered himself to be intellectually superior, especially to Christians. And he insulted Christians that they were stupid and mindless while he mindlessly repeated the latest ramblings of Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. Oh, and over there is a prostitute. And then there's two lesbians over there. Beside them, there's that liberal who hates America and even wants America to fail. Oh, and then there's that deadbeat mom over sitting in the corner who has three kids and, and through her own negligence keeps getting fired from job after job after job. And meanwhile, she feels she's entitled for the government just to help her whenever she wants. Then there's a person who practices New Age and, and a Wiccan. Then there's two people over in the left corner who you know are illegal aliens. They can hardly even speak English. Over there is a single guy who has that high-tech job, and he's rolling in more cash than he ever dreamed of, and he shows it by his lavish, materialistic lifestyle. All the latest gadgets. Oh, there's a gay guy over there. That guy over there, he's on the sex offender list. Then there's that college punk who, despite claiming to love God, always gets drunk every weekend while partying it up with the frat boys. And then there's that guy over there that everyone talks about. They say he murdered his family, but he got off on a technicality. You keep looking around, and you just can't believe Jesus is sitting here. Do you see the room? Do you see the people sitting in these chairs? Do you feel like a Pharisee yet? Friends, let me say this loud and clear. Jesus was not and never did condone the behavior of these sinners, nor did he participate in their sin, but he was a friend of sinners and that he went to them. And for those whose hearts were softened, he loved them as they came out of that sin and became new people. This action of Jesus is not blanket acceptance, but a wide invitation. There is a difference This is not what our culture says today. Just accept me for who I am and and what I choose to do. No, this was not Jesus. This was Jesus not being afraid to take his same message of repentance into the home of sinners. Even the worst of the worst of sinners. Friends, sinners do not have to clean themselves up to come to Jesus. They come to Jesus by his grace and are thereby cleaned up and changed forever. And that's the scandal of grace. That's the scandal of grace. What was Jesus saying to these people when he's in there in that room? Well, he's been saying what he's always been saying. These people, including Matthew, were living in Capernaum. They knew all about Jesus. He was well known by now. They had probably heard him many times by now. They had heard his message that we've already read of in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. 
The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When they came to Matthew's house, they came knowing that they were going to hear this man, and they knew what message they were going to hear. They knew what talk they were going to get. They were not going to get, God loves you just as you are. You don't need to change. You just need to accept yourself just like God has accepted you. That was not Jesus' message. They heard, repent and believe the gospel, but they heard it spoken with such loving words and exemplified with such loving actions that the dinner feast began to lose its appeal as they ate from the word of God. Oh, I wish we could witness how Jesus did this. We have a hard time speaking the truth in love. But Jesus didn't. He had that perfect balance of forceful words and soft, caring words. He didn't need strategies to talk to sinners. He was and is the word become flesh. So he simply spoke and gracious truth burst forth from his lips. Grace that changes the worst of sinners into children of God. Scandalous grace. And we read in verse 15 about these people. It says that there were many who followed him. These people heard. Their heart had been softened by God's word, and many followed him. I had to work through this this week. Only a few chapters later, you will read in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus talks about if you have someone that's sinning, and they're unrepentant in their sin, you are to treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. Wait a second here. What do you mean, Jesus? And obviously that passage is talking about people who are unrepentant in their sin. And especially someone who claims to be a believer who's unrepentant in their sin. You are to treat them as an outsider. But Paul himself says if you want to get away from sinners, you'd have to leave the world. And we are to share the gospel. And even the worst and the worst of sinners can have their hearts softened by the gospel. And we need to be ready to share with them the scandalous message of grace. The scribes and the Pharisees thought this whole scene was scandalous, and they were right. And Jesus catches wind of their thoughts, and and he says in verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Real quickly, and to reinforce what I said about Jesus's message to these godless people, look at how Luke records these words. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To repentance. Jesus' message to them was a message of repentance. And it was a message spoken with the perfect balance of grace and truth. For Jesus, all grace is truth. And he knew how to speak to them and still befriend them. At the same time, he called them to repentance. So what does this mean here? What does this mean when he says that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Is he saying here that the Pharisees were already okay with God? They're already righteous? No. Well, there's, there's irony here. I think there's two things he's saying. First, Jesus, of whom no one could claim any unrighteousness, was showing his righteousness by ministering to those who needed to be right with God. The Pharisees, if they were really righteous, should have been doing that themselves. But these self-righteous physicians had no care for the sick. But more importantly, Jesus' statement is dripping with irony, for these men only think they are righteous. If they would only have ears to hear and eyes to see, they would realize that they themselves were in need of a physician too. 
As I said, all Pharisees already knew they were sinners. But they had stumbled over the idea that they could somehow justify themselves by law-keeping. Matthew helps us see this in the way he records this incident in his gospel. And remember, he's the one that's there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus goes on to say, go and learn what this means. And now he quotes Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Had these Pharisees heard Jesus, they would have heard Hosea 6, 6, where God condemned the self-righteous, empty ritualism of Israel. Jesus, by saying this, was saying that Hosea 6, 6 was about them. These Pharisees had a false faith, an empty, ritualistic law-keeping that could do nothing to heal the sick soul. Not their soul or anyone else's soul. But the Pharisees, they couldn't hear Jesus. They saw scandal and saw further evidence in their minds that this man could not be the Messiah. Further evidence in their minds that this man needed to be dealt with once and for all. Now they were right about one thing. As I've already said, this was a scandal. But friends, we need to see that this isn't just a party at Matthew's house that's scandalous. The scandal is the fact that God has chosen to save any human beings at all. For God, in free mercy and grace, has chosen to save rebellious sinners like you and me. That indeed is a scandal. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death. But the scandalous gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, who while we were yet sinners died for us, so that now if we confess with our mouth that he, Jesus, is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That is a scandal. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet sitting in that room in Matthew's house, one of those chairs was for you and me. While we were still sitting in that room. You see, it's not them in those chairs. It's you and me. Friends, there's no way to spin it. What Jesus did when he saved you and me was absolutely scandalous. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That is scandalous. Or Colossians 1.21, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Friends, that is scandalous. So knowing how scandalous it was with you and me, sinners, rebels, insurrectionists, knowing that scandal by which we've been saved, how then are we to act toward the other people in the room? How are we to act toward the atheist, that bisexual, 
That materialistic playboy, that drunkard, that drug addict, that deadbeat mom, that loose woman, that dirty politician. Friends, until you and I see that we were sitting at the same table that they were, we will never treat them like Jesus did. You will instead sit outside with the Pharisees. We are not to condone or to participate in or to engage in the behavior of this world, but instead we are to share the gospel with them in love, knowing that God can and will overcome their rebellion with that very gospel message, if he so will. So we speak and we share with love, and we don't just share, hey, friends, get to know God. He's a good friend for you. We say, repent and believe the gospel, and we say it with love, with genuine love that they can tell from just looking at us. We love them because we were sitting at the same table they were. And so we speak. Friends, we don't preach tolerance. We preach transformation. We don't preach blanket acceptance. We preach a radically wide invitation. We preach the scandalous scope of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Have we forgotten the table we once sat at? Have we forgotten that we've been redeemed? Have we forgotten that now we sit at another table? We come together to participate at another table? And what's more, one day, oh, that day, we will be sitting at a grand wedding table. We, those in here who are Christians, and that's what I mean by we, will be gathered together at that wedding feast of the Lamb. That table, foreshadowed here by this story, will be a table populated not only by people from every tribe and people and nation and language, but also with redeemed sinners from every stripe. A pan-national family of ill-deserving men and women who have been saved by scandalous grace through faith alone. From the culturally conservative person who only did what was deemed by society to be minimally sinful, to the vilest of the vile, all sinners, all once rebels, all redeemed, all made new, all who walked in newness of life changed by scandalous grace. So my question for you this morning is, do you see yourself in the story? If you're painting the picture of the feast at Matthew's house, are you going to paint your face in there? Or are you on the outside? Where are you in the story? I hope you see yourself seated at the table. If you're an unbeliever, though, here this morning, I beg you to see that that God, the God who took a wretched old tax collector, a corrupt, thieving traitor to his people, that God took him and made him a disciple and an apostle, and not only that, the author of the first book in our New Testament. Oh, friend, he can and will be your friend too. Don't sit here and say, God would never accept me. You don't know how bad I've been. With all due respect, friend, stop being so arrogant and prideful to think that you can somehow overcome the Almighty.
God's hands are not tied by your sinfulness. Who do you think you are to make such a claim? God does not have his hands tied by your sin. He can and will overpower you if he so wills. So I call on you to come, to cast yourself upon Jesus this morning, to call upon his name, to believe in his name, to get up and follow him. And the scriptures say that if you do that, you will be saved. Do you see yourself this morning in the story? Just as Rembrandt painted himself into that picture I hope you see where you're painted in the picture today. Rembrandt would look in the mirror as he painted himself into these different settings. That's what this book does. It's a mirror. Look into the Word of God and see who you are in light of the Word of God and what Christ has done for you in the light of the Word of God and find yourself in this story. For it was our sin that put him there. Our fingerprints are on the blood-stained mallets that nailed his hands and feet to the cross. Our footprints are in the blood-saturated mud at the base of the cross. If you see yourself there, if you do, then you see yourself as you truly are, a sinner, a sinner in need of a friend, a sinner in need of Jesus, who is indeed the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think there are many different people in this room And some have no problem seeing themselves sitting at Matthew's table. They knew where they were before you radically changed their life. It may have been addiction. It may have been infidelity. Who knows? But there are others of us in here that were saved as children who grew up in a good, intact Christian home. And I'm afraid it's us who have a hard time seeing ourselves at Matthew's table. Because we don't see the little white lie that our little children tell us as being the same type of vile sin that those gathered around the tax collector's table had committed. But all sin is infinitely offensive against you, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would see ourselves for who we are. We're sinners. And for those in here who are believers, we are sinners saved by grace alone. And we continue to fight this sin, but now we are empowered to fight this sin because the Holy Spirit resides within us and he will finish what he began. But for those in here who are unbelievers this morning, perhaps they have a selfish concept of themselves where they think, well, I'm just too bad. Too bad for God to save me. Lord, I pray that you would break through that stony hard-heartedness and show them that Jesus, the man who called a traitor like Matthew, can call them as well. And they need to get up and follow him So, Lord, I pray that you'd save souls even now this morning. And for those in here who are believers, that you'd strengthen us to continue our walk. But help us, Lord, to remember where we came from. Because Phariseeism is very easy to slip into. Help us to remember what table we were once sitting at. Pray all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, our friend of sinners, Jesus Christ. Amen.